Father in heaven, we thank you for waking us up this morning. We thank you for the blessings we've received this week, and I pray that you would bless us again today as we have the last weekday of this camp meeting and continue to bless us through the remaining time that we have together. I pray that you would speak through me now. May the message be clear and may it lift up Jesus in a very powerful way. I pray in his name. Amen. So the title for the message this morning is Jesus and the Third Angel's Message. Now, in these morning meetings, we have been going through the sanctuary message as seen in the book of Revelation. And if you recall from our message on Monday, we saw that the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets are actually following Jesus through the holy place into the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. And we see that the Laodicea message applies especially to God's people as it relates to the work of Jesus in the most holy place. We see in the seals that the sealing of God's people clearly takes place from the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. We see in the trumpets that as Jesus moves into the most holy place and as the seventh trumpet sounds and the temple of God is open in heaven and we see the most holy place, the Ark of the Testament, that during this time the mystery of God should be finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now another way to look at this, if I haven't said this already, would be to say it like this. The seven churches, seals, and trumpets are just another way of showing how Jesus cleanses the sanctuary. Jesus cleanses the sanctuary in Laodicea when after he knocks on the doors of the hearts of Laodicea, we let him come in and he cleanses us of sin. Jesus accomplishes the work of cleansing the sanctuary in the seals when he seals the 144,000 with the seal of the living God, and Jesus cleanses the sanctuary in the trumpets when the mystery of God is finished, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Another way of looking at it, when you look at the churches, the seals, and the trumpets, is that when you come to the end of the churches, you're almost left with a question, wow, this is God's last day church, what is going to happen? But when you move from the churches to the seals, you find that from God's last day church, despite the fact that it was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, from that last day church comes the 144,000, and the trumpets gives us the answer that it's from the rise of the second advent movement that the 144,000 come. Now, when you look at the first 11 chapters, and I made mention of this on Monday, you're looking at those first 11 chapters and you're like, wow, look at God's plan. God has a plan, he has a people, 
and they are going to stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. The 144,000 are coming from the Second Advent Movement. God is going to win the great controversy. He's going to answer the charges of Satan through the demonstration of his people. But then you get to Revelation 12, which is right after all of those events in the Church of Seals and Trumpets. And the devil says, you want to bet? And the devil says, I have a plan too. And so the devil makes war with Michael and his angels. And the war starts in heaven and the war comes to this earth. And you look at Revelation chapter 12. And when Christ is born, the devil was standing by trying to destroy him. But this was Christ. He was delivered and he was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the persecution is directed instead of at Christ to the woman who represents the church. And the woman flees into the wilderness for 1,260 years. And at the end of time, just before Jesus comes back, the dragon makes a special attack on God's last day church who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we see that attack especially when we study Revelation 13, where we have two beasts. The first beast coming up out of the sea, that's out of the populated areas of the earth. It comes up out of the territory of Western Europe. It has seven heads and ten horns. And then we have the second beast coming up out of the earth, the unpopulated area of the United States of America. It has the two horns. It speaks like a lamb, but, or it looks like a lamb, speaks as a dragon, has two horns like a lamb, speaks as a dragon, and those two horns represent republicanism and Protestantism. And notice it's not the Republican Party. I saw someone share a quote on Facebook the other day where Ellen White says that she uses the term of Republican government and she's referring to Republicanism. And someone took that to mean that the Republican Party would be in power when the Sunday law comes. Come on, people, we got to do better than that. Come on. But we see that there's two horns, the Republicanism and Protestantism. Republicanism means that the United States has a representative form of government that protects the minority from the majority. So you can't just have a 51% vote to institute something that will take away constitutional civil liberties from a minority. That's republicanism. Now, yes, we go with majority vote for electing leaders of the country, but when it comes to the civil liberties contained in the Constitution, you can't just vote the minority off the, off the map, so to speak. So Revelation 13, you have these two beasts the first beast, the second beast, who will unite at the end of the world where the second beast makes an image to the first beast and then you have the mark of the beast. No man can buy or sell and that is all directed especially towards God's people and this is Satan doing everything that he can to stop God from accomplishing what he says he would accomplish in the first 11 chapters. So then we come to Revelation 14. And God has a response to the attacks of Satan. And when you look at the first five verses of Revelation 14, this gives us the picture of the final victory of God in the great controversy. Finally, we see God victorious and all of the efforts of Satan to undo God's plan of being victorious in the end come to a crashing halt because God has the 144,000 
who stand on Mount Zion with a lamb having his father's name written in their foreheads. They sing a new song, which we talked about last night. They follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. They have no guile in their mouth or without fault before the throne of God. And the question is, where did these people come from? And the answer is, they were produced by the three angels' messages. Let me tell you something, friends. The three angels' messages have not lost their relevance. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I will proudly say that I believe with all of my heart in the three angels' messages, and those messages will have force and authority because they are, they are ordained of God and are designed by God to prepare his people to go through the last crisis of earth's history, and they will never lose their force or relevance. God has given to us the three angels' messages to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. In them is contained the everlasting gospel with the command to fear God, to give glory to him, a reminder of the judgment hour, a reminder to worship him who created the Sabbath, a reminder that Babylon is fallen and that her wine or her theology will make you drunk. And if you drink her wine and become intoxicated with her drink, you will receive the mark of the beast as the third angel's message says, and if you receive the mark of the beast, you will receive the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is described in Revelation 16 as the seven last plagues. And some people stop in verse 11 and where it says the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and that's where people end the third angel's message. But the third angel's message finishes in verse 12, and Ellen White says in early writings, page 254, the third angel closes his message thus, here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary, the minds of all who embrace this message are directed to the most holy place where Jesus stands before the ark, making his final intercession for all those for whom mercy still lingers and for those who have ignorantly broken the law of God. So the third angel's message concludes in verse 12. Ellen White also says in Second Selective Messages, page 384, the banner of the third angel has inscribed upon it the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Yes, the mark of the beast is part of the third angel's message, but that is not the totality of the third angel's message. We talked about on Monday night how justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And what is it that gives the third angel's message so much power? What is it about the third angel's message that will produce the 144,000 who will be God's answer, God's final answer after what Jesus did on the cross, they will be God's answer to Satan's charges against the character of God. What is it about the third angel's message that will produce such a people? And as I've studied, I think there's probably more than one answer, but an answer that I have come that is very come up with that is very convicting to me is this. And that is that the third angel's message has power because Jesus personifies the third angel's message. Now let me show you how. 
Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As we talked about last night, Jesus is our example. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And if we look at Revelation 14, 12, we see that this is going to be the experience of the 144,000 when God looks to the onlooking universe and he says, here they are. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and who have the patience of the saints. Here they are. And wouldn't it be helpful, because we know that's our goal, wouldn't it be helpful to have an example of how to have this experience? Wouldn't it be helpful to see an example of patience, obedience, and faith that would lead us to the same experience? Turn to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This is a famous verse. And if you didn't know it already, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 is really another way of saying the three angels' messages, especially the third angel. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience. That word patience is the same word in the Greek as the patience of the saints in Revelation 14, 12. So Paul is saying we can have this patience, but the question is, how can we have this patience as we run the race that is set before us? Verse 2 tells us, looking unto Jesus. So that's good. We look unto Jesus, and that's going to help us have patience. But how? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice, endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't say he patienced the cross, but the word in the Greek is the same word as patience. That's why some versions say, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, or here is the endurance of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's the same word, to endure, to have patience. Jesus endured the cross. So you're looking for an example of patience or how to endure. Ellen White says in Great Controversy that as we face the time of trouble, we need a faith that will endure weariness, hunger, and delay. And Jesus had all of that on the cross. He was kept up all night through a mock trial, and he was hungry. If anybody had an excuse to demonstrate impatience, Jesus could have had an excuse, but he would not have been able to be our example. How is it that it can be said, here is the patience of the saints? Here's how. Here are a group of people who have learned to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. And they see that Jesus endured the cross. They see that no matter what Jesus was going through in that experience, that he demonstrated the character of God so that he could even say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It could be said of him that he loved his enemies. Here is the patience of the saints. 
when you look at the 144,000, their patience will be synonymous with the patience or the endurance that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. It's not just like, oh yeah, I was, I was kind of patient today. I, you know, I was running five minutes late, but I, I, didn't, I didn't lose the handle. I just kind of, we're talking about way more than that. That's a good start. And if you're not even there yet, don't think you can endure the cross. But that's the, the standard that Jesus has set before us. And if you think, how could I ever get there? Look unto Jesus. If you keep your eyes on Jesus through the trials of your daily life, he will give you the ability to have that kind of patience. Here is the patience of the saints. We are running a race that has been set before us. And Jesus, how did he endure the cross? It was for the joy that was set before him. And what was set before him was the travail of his soul, as Isaiah 53 says. He saw all those who would be saved because of his sacrifice. Now, in our case, yes, we'll have stars in our crown for the ones that will be in heaven with us. But the joy that is set before us is not so much of those that will be saved through our influence, but it's the joy of being with Jesus in the kingdom. If you can keep your eyes on the goal, for Jesus the goal was having us with him in the kingdom. For us, the goal is of being with him in the kingdom. That will give you the grace that you need to get through the trial that is set before you so that you can get to the end point. You know, a few years ago, it's, it's already been eight years ago now, I climbed Half Dome in Yosemite. Have have any of you ever done that? It's an awesome hike. It's a 4,800-foot elevation in eight miles. Now, if you don't know how much that is, that's nearly a mile of elevation. And uh, I might give you a hint. Don't try to do it if you're out of shape, because that's what I was. <laughs> but I had a, de a determination, and I, look, I wasn't completely unprepared. I had a backpack that had four liters of water, and I'm sipping as I walk. I'm not having to stop and drink out of these things. I had healthy, I went to a health food store, got healthy, high-sodium content snacks so that I wouldn't have to stop to go to the bathroom, all of those things, because you retain sodium, you retain water. And then the water stays in your system, and it keeps you going so that you don't get dehydrated. So I, I was prepared, just not in shape. So I had the water and the, and the concepts down, and I had it in my mind that no matter what happened, I was going to get to the top of Half Dome, and, and I did. I had the goal in mind. And I kept my eye on the goal, and my friend and I, we started at, at the base very early in the morning, and we got to the top several hours later, and we came back down, and we made it. We had our eye on the goal, and nothing was going to stop us from getting there. That's what this race of faith is like. You keep your eye on the goal. You keep your eye on Jesus. If Jesus could endure the cross, surely you can run with patience the race that is set before you. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that endured the way Jesus endured the cross. Do you see how that gives the third angel's message that much more power? 
It's not just the, oh yeah, they're kind of patient when they're provoked. These are people who have learned to endure the way Jesus endured the cross. That's why they are a demonstration to the onlooking universe. God can say, here they are. But not only that, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Go to Hebrews again. Hebrews and Revelation often are very closely connected. Speaking of Jesus as our example, again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So speaking of Jesus, it says when he came to this earth, he offered his body as a sacrifice. So we see the cross again. Jesus is our example as he endured the cross. He also says, I offered my body as a sacrifice. And then Paul, who's quoting Psalms, chapter 40, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So Jesus could say, It is written of me in Scripture that I have come to do the will of God. Well, what does the will of God mean in Scripture? If we go to the passage that's being quoted in Psalms 40, notice what it says. Psalms chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Here's Jesus. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In other words, Jesus can offer himself as the perfect sacrifice because the law of God was written in his heart. So as he's hanging on the cross as a sacrifice, he is the example to us of what perfect obedience means. Perfect obedience. Jesus says, if it be possible, Lord, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross as our example, yes, he has endured the cross because of the joy that is set before him, but he also has surrendered completely to the will of his Father, and that is a demonstration that the law of God is in his heart, and he is living an obedient life. So Jesus is a demonstration of patience as he is on the cross. Jesus is, an, is a demonstration of obedience or of one who kept the commandments of God when he's hanging on the cross. And I might add, it says he delighted to do God's will. That is an evidence of conversion. That is an evidence that your heart is united with the heart of God. If you are following God and seeking to conform your life to the precepts of Scripture and the spirit of prophecy, you're like, oh man, it's another day. One day closer to the coming of Jesus, but boy... I don't enjoy this. 
you missed the boat. Jesus came that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Jesus delighted in doing the will of God. All of the principles of health reform, dress reform, medical missionary work, doing the right arm of the third angel is designed to bring joy and happiness to your life. And if you aren't having that, you've missed the purpose of those principles. Jesus delighted to do God's will. So Jesus is our example. He is one who lived an obedient life and delighted in doing so, so that when his body was offered as a sacrifice, he was the perfect example of obedience. And in fact, interestingly, when you look at the new covenant, Jesus had God's law in his heart. The new covenant, God says, I will write my law into your heart and mind. In other words, Jesus lived the new covenant life on this earth, and he plans to do the same for you and me by writing his law into our hearts and minds so that we can keep the commandments of God. So when you look at Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who have patience or endurance the same way Jesus had patience or endurance on the cross. Not only that, here are they that keep the commandments of God, just as the law of God was in the heart of Christ and he delighted to do the will of God, here are those who keep the commandments of God because God has written his law into their hearts and minds and they delight to do God's will as well. These are not Adventists who are like, man, we barely made it. I'm so glad we got through the gates of heaven as the 144,000 because those commandments were killing me. <laughs> That's the example that Jesus gives us. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He delighted to do God's will, which is God's law in his heart, and he designs to write his law into our hearts and minds so that we will delight to do his will as well. And the example is on the cross. Jesus was on the cross. He offered his body as a sacrifice, surrendering to the will of God. And surrender is a key element to this. Jesus had patience or endurance. Jesus lived an obedient life. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, that's pretty easy to prove. In fact, you almost don't need to go to any Bible verses because the faith of Jesus is the faith of Jesus. He's our example. But I'll show you some examples, but let me read you a statement first. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 168. The faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. It has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to John. Faith in Christ as the sinner's only hope has been largely left out, not only of the discourses given, but of the religious experience of very many who claim to believe the third angel's message. Now notice this, this is very important. The faith of Jesus is not just the faith of Jesus. Ellen White says it's faith in Christ as the sinner's only hope. Your only hope is in Christ saving you. 
and a following him as your example where he gives you the grace to follow him. There are some who are coming out now who are saying that faith in Christ really doesn't save us because our faith is imperfect anyway, so we're relying on our own merit to save us and we can't be saved. That's not what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy teach. Yes, Jesus is faithful, but our fa- to every man has, given a, has been given a measure of faith. And God designs that we make a choice to have faith in Christ and his sacrifice so that we trust in his merits to forgive us for the sins of our past and to give us grace to live an obedient life going forward. The faith of Jesus has been largely left out of our discourses. 144,000, they keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. Scripture says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, in order to have faith, or it, one of the demonstrations of having faith, rather, is that we overcome. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So in order to overcome the world, we overcome through faith. Now Jesus says to the Laodicean church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will come into him. And if we open the door, I will come into him and, and will sup with him and he with me. Now notice verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Now, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's faith on the cross as well. Notice, if we are to overcome as Jesus overcame, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, in order to overcome, we need faith. And if we are to overcome as Jesus overcame, we need the faith of Jesus. And that is the message to the Laodicean church, because it's the Laodicean church that has the potential to be the 144,000. Who it will be said of, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation 3.21 says, because he overcame, he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it's implied in Hebrews 12 that when he is enduring the cross, he needs faith to overcome so that he can get to the throne of God. So again, the cross is the illustration that we need of Jesus to have the experience of the third angel. Jesus demonstrates patience or endurance on the cross. Jesus demonstrates obedience or keeping the commandments of God as the perfect sacrifice while hanging on the cross. Jesus demonstrates faith, the faith of Jesus, as he overcomes on the cross. And that is the example that he gives to us so that we can be part of the 144,000 where God can say, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are those who learned to sit at the foot of the cross every day 
and to see how Jesus endured the cross so that we can run with patience the race that is set before us. Here are they that learned to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus when he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And your will, O God, is your law written in my heart and mind. And so we learn to allow God to write his law into our hearts and minds as we surrender our lives to him. And we learn to exercise faith in the impossible. Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, Ellen White tells us, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Faith did not present to him, or hope did not present to him, coming forth from the tomb as a conqueror. But by faith, he could say, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And because he was relying in his mind on the promises from the Father throughout his life, he could, by faith, see coming out of the grave. But to all human appearance, there was no hope. And God's last day people are going to go through Jacob's time of trouble where to all human appearances, there will be no hope and we will need to have the faith of Jesus to get through that experience. I find it very powerful that when you look at the third angel's message, the reason why the third angel's message has so much power is because Jesus on the cross personifies the third angel's message of Revelation 14, 12, which is the exact opposite of those who received the mark of the beast. Those who received the mark of the beast have fallen to the deception of man that we can't overcome and we must follow man's laws rather than God's laws and we can't control our temper, we can't control our character, so let's just make a man-made law to overlook all of our deficiencies. And we can't have faith in the promises of God, so let's create a system that will take care of our human needs since apparently God can't take care of us in a crisis. That's the difference between those who will receive the mark of the beast and those who have the experience of the third angel's message and receive the seal of God. And I want to show you a couple of other things to show how what Jesus did on the cross produces the harvest known as the 144,000. Because the very next thing after verse 12, we see the concept of the special resurrection in verse 13, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, meaning from the time of the third angel's message onward, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works who follow them. There is a blessing for those who died in the third angel's message. They will come up in the grave and see Jesus coming on the clouds along with the wicked who pierced Jesus. But then verse 14 through 20 describes the harvest. When God has his people ready, there will be a harvest. And I want to show you how this harvest is produced in relation to the cross. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth what? Much fruit. 
Now, when Jesus speaks of the hour that he should be glorified, he is speaking of his death on the cross. So he is saying, my death is like a seed of corn that is planted in the ground and dies. When I die on the cross, he's speaking of the future at this moment when he, says, when he speaks of his death. He says, when I die, I am like a seed planted in the ground. You could take that seed and eat that kernel, kernel of corn and you would get some nourishment from it, but you wouldn't get as much out of it as if you planted that seed in the ground and it came up as a plant and when it reaches its full maturity, you have many corn kernels that you can have for a whole mill rather than just one little piece. And those kernels of corn in that mature plant are in the likeness of the seed that was planted. Jesus said, except the son of or the hours come that the son of man should be glorified, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die it abideth alone, but if it die it bringeth forth much fruit. Here's what Jesus is saying. My death will produce much fruit. My death will produce a harvest like me. Go to Mark 4, verses 28 and 29. You see, when you plant a seed, it, a, cor, a seed of corn doesn't produce an apple tree. And the seed of Jesus produces people like Jesus. Specifically, the cross. The death of Jesus. Mark 4, 28 and 29. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn and the ear. Notice verse 29. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. When the harvest is right, you don't wait because it's going to go bad if you wait too long. So immediately when the harvest is right, the, the farmer puts in the sickle. And Jesus says that my death on the cross was the seed that was planted, and it's going to produce a harvest. When the harvest is ripe, immediately the sickle will be put forth to harvest that fruit. James 5, 7, and 8, we read this the other night. Perhaps it will make more sense to you even tonight. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, this is speaking of Christ, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience, there's that word patience, hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. So the early rain at Pentecost began the growth of the Christian church. And so the plant started growing. The early rain started the Christian church. And then the Christian church went into the wilderness because of the persecution, but the early rain is still in effect, and we are still receiving the blessing of the outpouring of the early rain. And so then Christ raises up the second Advent movement so that the harvest can be finished, because when we've studied prophecy this whole week, Adventism was raised up to be like Jesus. Jesus comes in, we overcome like he overcame. That sounds like being like Jesus. 
Then in the seals, when, you're, when the seal of God is placed in your forehead, that's the character of Jesus. The trumpets, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the character of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12, patience of the saints, keep the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, that's the character of Jesus. That's the harvest that Jesus is trying to produce with the seed that was planted on the cross. And so what he is waiting for is to pour out the latter rain to bring that harvest to fruition. Be also patient. Have the patience of the saints. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now I'm going to read to you this statement again from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So Ellen White uses Mark 4.29 in this context. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And she's quoting 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Now let me be honest with you here, friends. I have heard since I was at least five years old that there's no way that Jesus couldn't be here within five years. And I'm 40 now. Now, I believe that Jesus is coming soon, but I've been hearing this for at least 35 years now, that we can't go more than five years. I remember when my family came to visit Uchi Pines back at the end of 1989, and New Year's was going to be 1990, and there were rumblings of the Gulf War, and we were convinced that that was the end of the world then. And we're still here, and there was another Gulf War after that. And there's all these saber rattlings with Trump and North Korea and all of these things, and there's these hurricanes, and these are signs that Jesus could come. But what about his people? What about the harvest? If the latter rain was poured out, would, your, would the, li the plant of your life be ready to receive that rain so that you would mature into a ripe plant ready to be harvested? Or would you still be a little blade that's barely peeked through the glass that only wants the milk of the word where you're patted on the back? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and I don't want to hear anything else. And then we keep feeding milk to our people in church every Sabbath, and we wonder why we have a bunch of babies in church who cry like babies at every church board meeting. Where's the spiritual maturity in Adventism? Where is the willingness to endure hardship as good soldiers of the cross? Oh, I'll be an Adventist as long as I don't have to bear the cross. Jesus planted a seed way back in 31 AD at Calvary, and that seed came up through the ground, and the early rain was poured out at Pentecost, and that that crop started to grow, and then the harvest gained potential when Jesus went into the most holy place. And ever since then, God has been waiting to see a people that he can pour out his latter rain upon. Now let me finish the statement. We're all who profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory. And that fruit we talked about earlier this week is Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruits of the Spirit. I'm not going to repeat that. 
But if we have the fruits of the Spirit and we were bearing those fruits to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Don't tell me that, oh yeah, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but um, you know, soul winning isn't my thing. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Are you sowing the seed of the gospel? Are you keeping your light under a bushel? Oh, you know, people wouldn't like what I believe, so I'm just going to be a silent witness. And you're such a silent witness, they don't even know you're an Adventist. That's not sowing the seed of the gospel. Has the seed that Jesus planted on the cross germinated in your life? so that it could be said of you, here is the patience of the saints as seen in your life. Here is someone who keeps the commandments of God with delight in their heart. Here is someone who has the faith of Jesus that as Jesus couldn't see through the portals of the tomb, there are things that you can't see how God's going to put them all together in your life, but you still believe that God's promises will be true even if the human circumstances don't look very hopeful. Jesus personifies the third angel's message for a very special reason. One, Jesus was the, is the first one to fully demonstrate this character to the world. Secondly, he says, because of my death, that seed will produce much fruit, and the seed that was planted will produce a harvest in the likeness of the seed. And when the seed or the harvest is ripe, immediately he will harvest that grain and he will come to gather his people. And so the question I have for you today is, have you allowed the cross to break you so that the seed can germinate in your life. I mean, look, you've heard a lot this week. Theoretically, you don't need to hear another sermon. You just need to spend time with Jesus and let him speak to your heart. Now, by the way, please come back for the rest of the messages. This <laughs> because the Lord has a word for you in those messages as well. But you get my point. You're not going to become ready to meet Jesus by just listening to sermons and then not applying them. But God uses the foolishness of preaching to touch your heart. And God is trying to wake up a sleeping church to the reality that in order for us to be ready to meet Jesus, we need the character of Jesus. In order, in order to have the character of Jesus, we need to meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. That's why Ellen White says we would do well to spend a thoughtful hour each day meditating on the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, because it is in the closing scenes that we see his character most fully that will prepare us to have the character that is needed to go through earth's final crisis. And if you're spending a thoughtful 30 seconds with Jesus every day, that's not enough. 
but I'm busy, I'm doing the medical missionary work, but you're not spending time with him. So how can you represent him if you don't know him? That is our message as a people. The third angel's message, yes, we have the mark of the beast and Babylon and those things, but ultimately it's about being like Jesus. So I just close now and appeal to you. Learn to see Jesus on the cross so that the seed that he planted at Calvary will bear fruit in your life. Amen? Let's kneel as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus endured the cross, that he delighted to do your will, and that he overcame by faith while hanging on the cross. Thank you that he planted the seed through his death that will bear a harvest someday. Lord, we are weak and sinful, but you are almighty. And the power of the cross can change our sin-hardened hearts so that we will be that special harvest someday soon. Help us to be ready for Jesus to come. Give us the grace to have his character so that someday soon, God may say of us, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and your love to each one of us. And may we be faithful, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.